This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Cullum Toybean is one of the most respected and decorated writers alive today. He spoke to Kim in 2022 about his prize-winning book, The Magician, which has a really interesting premise, which uh, you'll hear all about, of course. Kim really liked this interview. She described Cullum as an extraordinarily generous interviewee, someone who is both interesting and interested in the world around him, uh, someone who makes the people he is speaking to feel clever, which is a lovely characteristic to have, as is that Irish accent. Enjoy. Cullum Toybean is probably Ireland's greatest living writer. His novels... Brooklyn, The Blackwater Lightship, The Master, many more, are much acclaimed. His latest is a fictionalised life of German writer Thomas Mann. But we also have a collection of essays, collectively entitled A Guest at the Feast and a poetry collection, Vinegar Hill. All this in the three and a half years since a punishing treatment regime for cancer laid Colin Torbin out. He writes about this in an essay called Cancer, My Passion It's Down For, which is a funny piece, as funny as cancer, even funnier than cancer. Colin Torbin joins me now from Los Angeles, I think. Hello. Yeah. Hi, good morning here. You could make me laugh about cancer. (laughs) Look, I promised I wouldn't write one of those pieces. I hate those pieces. You know how my battle against cancer, how I, you know, chemo. I I just promised all the time not I am never going to write about this. And then one day I was walking along the street and the first sentence came into my head. And, you know, it's an old story. You promise you're not writing anything until after Christmas or until after Easter or this year. And suddenly a new sentence comes into your head and there you are. You're at it again. It all started with my balls. That's right. That's the sentence. It all started with my balls. Once I thought of that, I thought, (laughs) I I now have the piece. The piece I promised I wouldn't write, I'm now going to do. There's a bit that you say, I couldn't drink alcohol I still had no appetite for food. I was skinny and miserable and bald. I couldn't sleep. I found walking hard. I had only one ball, but there really was nothing to complain about. <laughs> I suppose I suppose what I'm saying really is that I wasn't in pain and also that it, it seemed the treatment at one point was going to work and then there was no one telling me anything different. So, you know, it wasn't, I mean, I think it would be, it would have been quite, different if it had been a sort of terminal question I I probably would have written a very um, I hope a funnier piece (laughs) I hope I would have found something to laugh at Uh, we should say are you all right now yeah you know I I, anyone who's been through it knows you go in every six months or for at first every three months and then every six months and they put you into this funny machine it's like someone's going to boil you or, or 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 um indeed roast you and um Instead, they take uh, all sorts of photographs of your little insides. And um, so, with that, yeah, it's been fine up to now. I mean, I, mean, I just, the, the oncologist is great because he just, he doesn't spring, he doesn't do drama. He doesn't, he doesn't string it all out. He, the minute I come in the door, he says, look, this is all fine. And then he just has a few little details. But 
it, he's very good like that. In other words, he doesn't make you feel, oh my God, I'm holding on his every word. No, it's fine. It's been fun. I'll, I'll go and do another one, another one of those funny machine things in about a month's time. So, But it was not only in your testicles, it was in your lungs and your liver, as I understand it. Did the chemo get all fast. of it? Look, it's a sneaky thing. It travels mm. fast. I mean, the last thing, when the day you said liver, I said, no, I feel fine. He said, no, no, I'm not talking about how you feel. You know, that like, I can show you here how this, this is moving. And uh, it moved very, very quickly. One of the things that the treatment, which literally laid you out, I mean, it didn't give you time to read <laughs> or think. You just lay on the sofa and went blank for a while. However... That might have been quite useful, do you think, for the percolation of the Thomas Mann novel? I don't know. It felt more like a complete waste of time. But obviously to stop a book, to stop a novel in the middle, I'd written four chapters. I think there are 18 altogether. I'd written four. So I suppose I was thinking about it. But honestly, uh, it would have been better if I had just got on writing it. Um, one of the things you did not do when you were laid up was to go and see the Pope in Phoenix Park, which you would have. Why? Oh, first, I suppose it's spectacle. And I'm interested in spectacle. If there's anything at all on a circus on or if it's anything to fight between two fellows out in the street, I'll go out and look at it. But this also was important because I had been in the Phoenix Park in Dublin in 1979 when John Paul II came to Ireland and he got a million people in a, in a country, a very small country, to be, to be in one place at that time, which was the Phoenix Park. Because I was a journalist, I got into the front row, which was probably a mistake because I would have been better with the crowd as a journalist. So this time around, I just wanted to see... What change had occurred in Ireland in those, I suppose, in, in those 40 years? And of course, there, I mean, I followed it on television. And of course, it was a big change. There were many, many fewer people and a sort of um, attitude towards the Pope himself, which was less than reverent. In other words, he, I think he was quite surprised to be, come to Ireland to be, to be told, look, you are responsible. You are the ultimate res one responsible for the covering up of clerical sex abuse. And what do you have to say about that? I don't think that's what he came to Ireland for. I think he thought we were all nice, faithful people who would meekly, you know, listen to his sermons. But it wasn't like that from the moment he set foot on the country. He wasn't like that. I talked to Fenton O'Toole a while ago, who was a, a, an ex-colleague of yours when you were working at a Dublin newspaper. And in fact, your book of essays, Love in a Dark Time, is dedicated to him. And he was talking about that dramatic change in Ireland pretty much in your lifetime as well. You were born a couple of years before him. And you've called it the great unsettling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to watch that move from complete reverence, you know, in other words, to be a journalist in Dublin in 1979 was to feel outside not only a mainstream, but a tidal wave of reverence. You should have seen the Irish Times coverage of, of that 1979 visit. It was so reverent, so obsequious, the Holy Father. I mean, there was nothing, there was no criticism could be made of, of the church at that time. And you just wondered, like, what is journalism come to? And um, that so that to watch the change where the agenda 40 years later was the agenda of, hold on a minute, 
Um, the church is responsible for this. It isn't taking responsibility. And really, the minute he arrived, um, one of the minister, the minister for children, who was a well-known lesbian who had brought us, who had brought a, you know, a constitutional case about her own rights, and she was a wonderful person. And she, she, she didn't confront him, but she simply said to him, in public, that he would have to address this matter, and she wondered what his response would be. And it was very polite. It was very well done. But it was nonetheless it was a very different thing to the bowing and weeping general reverence of 40 years before. You went to St. Peter's College in Wexford, uh, which was at the centre of the Ferns report on clerical sexual abuse. You knew many of the priests. You've written about this in A Guest at the Feast. What did you think when it started all coming out? Um, I mean, it was very surprising, I have to say that. Um, None of us knew there was because there was so much gossip and tittering and innuendo. It, no one knew that the physics teacher, Father Collins, who later went to jail, no one knew that he'd been sent to England by the bishop in 1966. And the bishop said he'd done his time in England. The bishop didn't tell the parish he sent him to anything about his problems he had caused in the school, which is that he had gone up to the dormitory one night and basically sexually interfered with a good number of boys. Um, who people were boys between, I suppose, aged around, usually around 15 uh, on that particular dormitory. And um, he came back in 68. I came to the school in 1970. No one knew this had happened. He was put in charge of the dark room. The reason why I can develop photographs is courtesy of Father Collins, me and him together in a dark room. Um, And his room, I mean, the priests had rooms. And of course, what you really wanted was to be, make it, be be sort of friends with the priest because it was one telephone for 300 boys so you could use his telephone you could just also just go up to his room uh, it was it was a boring you know you're, you're bored a lot of the time you go up there watch tv listen listen to his records but we were all friendly with him he was very nice to us and um, there was no sense and for those two years it seems he did not abuse anyone at least there's no there's no court case for that but the minute our group left. In other words, he was very close to, he was a very good teacher and he was very close to the boys who were doing honours physics and he really worked hard with them. But the court, but the evidence in court begins that the year after we left, which would be 1973, he began to pick on boys who really were from poorer backgrounds or were not honours students and um, he really destroyed their lives. He just literally destroyed their lives. And he did this over a long period. And it was very shocking to to be, to, to have been so close to it, to have been in that room. When the Ferns report came out, I could follow. They did a lot about the architecture of that particular school, like where, the, where Father Collins' room was and, and why his room was there rather than where the other priest's rooms were. And uh, following all that, was it was, it was really uncanny sort of eerie to realize that those very corridors that stairs that particular room of his that all of that um was appearing in an official report and the official report was topographically accurate at least and and of course it was shocking you've said that he took a very dim view father collins of homosexuality and you knew this because he had disapproved when you told a joke about Oscar Wilde at the Debating Society. Yeah, now, he said to me... Sorry, sorry carry sorry. on. No, he just he just took me up on that. And also there was a, there was, there was a friend of mine who's parted his hair in the middle. 
And I have to say, he was not, this was not a sign of homosexuality. It was a son. He was a very good looking guy and he cared about his appearance. And he, in the middle, but Father Collins did say to me, you know, I'd worry about him. Because it was a sign of homosexuality. Was, <laughs> yeah, in the middle. was Father Collins was Father Collins a homosexual or a paedophile? Oh, um, he he was a homosexual. In other words, he wasn't interested in underage. In other words, pre prepubescent boys. It absolutely there was no no evidence of any sort was ever given that he had any interest in that. He, um, you know, he was he was in a boarding school, and there were three hundred of us. And I mean, the the I, I imagine the average age um, his his thing would have been fifteen or sixteen. You said that back in the day, it was easy to ask the question: if heterosexuality were not only forbidden but unmentionable, if blokes married other blokes, and you, as a good closeted heterosexual man were put in charge of a boarding school of 300 girls aged between 13 and 18, would you not, over a long career, make sexual demands on one of the girls? It was a great argument. You enjoyed making it. You were sure you were right. You are not so sure now. Why not? Because it seemed to me that it was about power. In other words, instead of, of about being the mere business of a sort of lonely sexuality that cannot be named. And, and, and if you repress something as, 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 as badly, as, as deeply as the, certainly the Irish church did and the Irish society did, um, then you're going to get really awful results. But instead of it being a result of weakness, I wondered if it was not the result of strength. In other words, that the power of saying in the school, I can do this if I want to. And I can say to each boy, if you ever tell anyone what um, happened between us now, I will have you expelled. And not only that, but I, having done this, will now decide that there's going to be a swimming pool. I will be in charge of the swimming pool. Then um, there's, a, there's a vacancy for principal of the whole school. I will be principal of the whole school. And the bishop all the time knows about him. And so you have this extraordinary idea that it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what damage we have done. We will take power. We will hold power. We will move into further areas of power. And um, it, it made me re really um, look at this situation, not as an example of um, closeted homosexuality, but of a church desperate to hold on to its power. And this being one of the signs, the other signs being, for example, in, in a nearby town, uh, there was a woman um, was living with a, with a man who was married and she was a teacher in a nun school. And they fired her and the courts supported the nuns for firing this considered to be a brilliant teacher because she was living in sin, as it were, with a married man. So, you know, it, it, it was all over the place. They were doing whatever they could to make sure that that no one stepped out of line. You nearly joined the priesthood yourself. Well, I don't know how <laughs> nearly you came. <laughs> I did. Uh, I am um, in the last year there in, in St. Peter's, I stayed behind at Easter. Um, at my own volition, you know, to because they, they said that anyone who thought they might have a vocation should do that. And um, I have to say it was a quite a difficult it was <laughs> speaking of coming out to your parents. It was quite a difficult thing to say at home. My mother just laughed and laughed and said, well, Colin wants to be a priest. <laughs> what, what is going to happen next? Like, what is what is this about? 
you know, that in other words, Ireland was changing and mothers were no longer desperate to have their sons become a priest. She just thought it was tremendously funny. She couldn't stop laughing at me. And I found that very difficult. I was, I was taking myself very seriously at the time. <laughs> and, uh, so I stayed behind at Easter. And um, I have to say that if I had a camera, then I could show you certainly four people I could name who later either went to jail or were, in, were in, certainly in court or were being, you know, like, in other words, in retrospect, it was a very strange time. But anyway, I got over the thing. Maybe my mother's laughter helped, but I got over the thing within a month or two. And certainly by the time I was leaving the boarding school, I was going on to university in Dublin where I had a whale of a time. Thank you. Uh, you say that becoming a priest seemed to solve the problem. I mean, generally speaking, people joined the priesthood because, first of all, it seemed to solve the problem of not wanting others to know that you were queer. You could be celibate, you could be unmarried, and everyone would understand why. And I yeah, suppose yeah, that... I mean I, I mean, I think this is a quite important matter, that why... Mm. Uh, you know, certainly in the American church, and I think in the Irish church to some extent, but in the American church, people say, why are all these homosexuals infiltrating our church as though it was something new that was happening? Um, I, I think for a gay man, you, you could certainly find at 15 or 16 that the entire problem, yes, as you said, that you know, people wouldn't ask you, where's your girlfriend? Well, you know, you, you, you think you're thinking of getting married. All of those questions just wouldn't arise because you're a priest, you're meant to be celibate. But the second thing which may be more important is that if you're gay in a, re in a repressive society, um, for example, if you're gay at the World Cup, for example, um, you... Um, you, you think people despise you. If they really knew about you, they would really despise you. I think if you're a priest, people want you. They want you there for weddings. They want you for funerals. They want you for baptism. You're generally a respected member of the community. So I think that is also important. The third thing, I suppose, is that if you're gay, again, around 15 or 16, you take nothing for granted. And that means you can become oddly self-conscious and oddly introspective. And that can have its spiritual element. So I think there are many reasons why um, the church would be an attractive place for a gay man. You also say that there's an aspect of the Catholic religion itself, this business of knowing and not knowing something all at the same time, which brings us back to Fintan O'Toole, um, because of his book, We Don't Know Ourselves, he talked about the known unknowns and the knowing unknowing. And we, the, keeping an illusion separate from the truth. And in Brooklyn... Your novel, Brooklyn, you say they could do everything except say out loud what it was they were thinking. I mean, that's a that's a that's a huge kind of national tray. How did you escape that tray? Oh, I'm I, I'm not sure I did. Um, did you not? No, I, no, I, no, I'm not sure I did. And um, I, I, I'm very skilled at keeping things to myself. And I'm very, and I have the experience a lot where someone says to me, you know, two years later, why didn't you say that then? And my answer always is, oh, no, I never thought of that. I mean, I wasn't, it didn't occur to me to do that. Uh, you, you know, sometimes not saying something seems like a form of tact or politeness, but that's, that's just an excuse. <laughs> that's just an excuse. No, I think it's, um, I think it's part of the deal certainly in Ireland and perhaps in many northern countries where there are long winters, you learn to keep things to yourself over a long winter. 
I thought that you'd sort of clump up before the fire <laughs> and chat over the long winter. <laughs> I do my best, but you can't. I mean, there's no point in me telling you that, oh, now I'm completely, you know, I'm, I'm like an Italian. Everything that occurs to me, I say, I don't do that. But I do, it is useful for novels because the novel form itself is, I think, unique in allowing you to dramatize the distance between what someone is thinking and what someone is saying. So in a novel, you can have somebody being in a rage internally and then just turning and saying thank you. I was going to ask you why, after a, a million biographies have been written about Thomas Mann, that you decided to write a fictionalised life of him. What do you think the novelistic approach added to our understanding of him? I suppose uh, it's the word understanding I would question there. What I'm interested in doing is creating an illusion. I suppose what a biographer is interested in doing is offering you knowledge, information, and giving you a sort of understanding. I want to give you much more than that. I want to bring you into the room. I don't just want to bring you into the room. I want to bring you into the feelings that are going on in the room. I want to bring you into the undercurrents in the room. And then I want to bring you further. I want to bring you into Thomas Mann's mind. I want, to, I want you to have you see the world through his eyes, feel what he feels, remember what he remembers. So, so, so I'm involved in some sort of immersive process. I'm adding detail to detail, invention to invention, fact to fact, to see if I can actually give you the experience of being there. Why Thomas Mann? I know that you read Buddenbrooks when you were younger. He's not a particularly fashionable writer these days. You will have led many people to read him, possibly for the first time. And I know that he is, uh, how do I say it, one of your homosexuals living secretly in society that would not accept them. Um, is is that does that explain it? Yeah, it's partly the explanation. Um, the uh, yes, he's not fashionable at the moment. I mean, when I was but when I was in my late teens, he was very fashionable. So I'm still sort of locked into that period when everyone was reading The Magic Mountain and when the movie of Death in Venice had just come out. But the, the which was fabulous, right? It, I mean, that's pretty much all I knew of Thomas Mann was Dirk Bogart in Venice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, the big change came when his diaries were published um, in in Germany in the 1980s, in English in the 1990s. And we saw that this very buttoned up father of six, a scholarly figure, sedentary and serious, was, was not only politically wavering. In other words, he he really, really wasn't certain about anything, but he would give a lecture. And there would be 2,000 Germans listening to his scholarship and he would be wearing a three-piece suit. And um, in his diary later, he would write, in the third row, there was a young man. I caught his eye, his gaze, you know, his beauty. And that, that he was constantly watching and thinking about young men, uh, really, most of the time, while being married with six children. So I had to start working on this. First thing, who is his wife? She is the most interesting person. She's from an assimilated Jewish family in Munich. She was one of the first German women to go to university to study science. Her grandmother was the most famous German feminist of the age. And um, 
the family, her own family was tremendously rich and cultured. Her brother was studying conducting at Gustav Mahler. You know, they knew everybody. And 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 she ha- was under no illusions about him. And she married him and had six children with him, was intensely loyal to him and is not the long suffering wife of a closeted gay man. That 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 she was she was much more interesting than that. And my job was to show all that. My job was every time Katia, his wife, comes into the room, she must say something clever or interesting. And uh, so that so that I just had to build her into somebody who was on one level intensely loyal and and um, very domestic and in another level an immensely, I suppose, free spirit. And in the meantime, he is locked into his fame because he, he really wins fame at the age of 25 with his novel Buddenbrooks. And also everyone wants a piece of him. You know, he's wonderful lectures and um he really is quite a silent, ghostly figure. And my job was to see if I could make drama from that. I have to say, I, I had the First World War, the rise of Hitler, German inflation, Second World War and the Cold War to work with, which was difficult because um, you, you never know how much information to give, how much it is backdrop, how much it is in the foreground. You have to constantly play with that. But the big Bigger problem maybe was that he had six children, which for any novelist is a nightmare. Yeah, too many I mean, children. <laughs> I mean, really, really, I wanted, to, I wanted to cut it in half and just give him three. But I couldn't do that because I had to follow the facts to some extent. But um, yeah, I don't know any novelist who would, who would welcome the arrival of six children into a novel. And the wife, Katya, knew he was gay. Yeah. And in fact, I don't know, was... Uh, collaborative in yeah, his pursuits? Yes. yes, yes. Um, in her memoirs, which she wrote in her early 90s, she dictated them. She said she was in Venice with him the year before he wrote Death in Venice. And yes, Tommy, she called him Tommy. Tommy kept looking at this boy on the beach and um, she doesn't. She, she isn't expressing shock or horror or shame or anything. Just that's what Tommy did. But the funniest one is 19, uh, when he was 75, which would be in 1950. And they were in Switzerland and they were staying in some posh hotel. Thomas Mann, his wife and his daughter, they could not have been more respectable. And Thomas Mann fell in love with a waiter. How do we know? We know because he writes about it in his diaries. And what he says in his diaries is that I will exchange world fame for the favours of this man. And his wife and his daughter organised. He was a bit depressed and they thought it would cheer him up just to see this waiter more. And, you know, biographers have interviewed this waiter. This waiter really did exist. And he did remember Thomas Mann. And he knew he was being flirted with. But but he was being overseen by Thomas Mann's wife and by um, his daughter. And he's 75 at this time. I mean, there's hope for us all. <laughs> so interesting. I mean, it's almost as if he's surrounded by more interesting people than himself at times. His children yes. were interesting. His daughter, Erica, did she marry Alden? <laughs> um, Erica was running out of road in about 1935 where her passport, her German passport would not be renewed by the by the Nazis and she was in Europe and she was at a party in Amsterdam her brother was there, Klaus and her brother um, introduced her to this young man who was called Christopher Isherwood 
And she said to him, she knew he was gay and she knew obviously he was unmarried. And she said to him, will you marry me? I need someone to marry me because I need a British passport. And he said, no, no, he couldn't do that. His mother wouldn't like that. And his boyfriend neither. But he knew someone who would marry her. And he sent a telegram to W.H. Auden, who wrote back saying, delighted. So Erica put on her, Erica, who was, who was, you know, who was a great lesbian, put on her best suit and tie and got her hair cut short and went to England and married Auden. This made a huge difference to her because it meant that she could work for the BBC during the Second World War. It, it meant that, you know, that, that she um, it gave her not only a sort of passport, but a, but a Britishness. But um, yeah, so in the early 1920s, German children, teenagers had no interest in their parents' authority, all forms of authority after the the Kaiser, the loss of the First World War, went. So the two man children, the two eldest ones, Erika and Klaus, became poster children for the new freedom in Germany. They slept with whoever they liked. They were, they were mainly gay. They wrote books. They traveled. They said whatever they liked. Um, and they were photographed and written about all, all the time. And um, they performed in the theater. There was no end to the amount of publicity they got. And then they would come home regularly to Munich to their father looking for money. Of course, he had been locked in his study writing some great book. And all he wanted was the life they had. But he couldn't have it. But but he had it vicariously through them. The problem was, of course, that they were so busy enjoying themselves, they didn't notice what was really going on around them, which was the inflation didn't affect the man's because he was getting money from his sales of his books in France or in England or America. But um, they were having such a good time to children, they didn't notice the rise of Hitler. And Hitler really took Thomas Mann by surprise. And even when he really got the measure of Hitler, he did not take stand. How do you avoid judging him? Because you don't. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that um, perhaps a biographer can make judgments and I absolutely cannot. It's what I must not do. I will lose the reader if I do that. Then, And how you don't do it is you move into very slow time. There's a moment later in the book where his son, Klaus, commits suicide and uh, the, the, in the south of France. Thomas Mann is in Stockholm. And he doesn't go to the funeral and anyone can judge him. But my job is to show every five minutes of that day how decisions are made, who meets who, what happens. And what happens really is that Thomas Manny's wife and his daughter, instead of coming together with grief, they move away from one another in their grief. They, they almost they cannot even bear to see each other in, the, in, in that day. They're so grief stricken. And in that time. A decision is made almost almost by implication and instead of instead of discussing it. They, they leave silence and the silence leads them not to go to the funeral. And I, I think you can see the same thing happening in 1933 when Thomas Mann realizes that his own books will be taken out of the bookshelves in Germany, which means that as he's writing a sentence, that sentence will probably not appear in print. It will appear in translation, but not in the German he's writing it. He's losing his language. And um, he, he postpones this for as long as possible. His books are not burned in the big Nazi bonfire of famous writers in 1933 and uh, he's won the Nobel Prize. He's he's sort of he's above all the other writers. He's a great German figure. So they don't pick on him in 1933 and he lets it go. He doesn't denounce Hitler. 34, 35. It's really getting late. You know, he's the last one left. He's obviously not living in Germany. He couldn't safely go back in, but he's still playing this funny game with the Nazis. And his daughter eventually says, if you go on with this, 
I will never speak to you again. And that would be such a big move for me because I love you so much. And it's 1936 and his wife makes him issue a statement. The fun part of this is that nobody really notices his statement, which <laughs> annoys him tremendously. And uh, because he's a famous man. And uh, so he, he he sets out to write another statement, which is going to be seen all over the world. And that's the one we all notice. That's the one we all see. He thought he'd lost his diaries at one point, and this was massively important to him. He panicked. What was in the diaries that he feared getting out? Homosexual content. In other words, he was describing people. But we don't actually know whether he ever had a homosexual experience. So it was erotic yearning that he was worried about, was it? Yes, it was the question I said earlier of the third row. Right. But there, but there are mentions in the later diaries of him kissing young men. So you know, go, it goes slightly further than that. There's nothing about him going to bed with anybody, but there's a lot of yearning in them. There's a lot of very emphatic and graphic yearning for young men. And anyone looking at the diaries, it, it's it's almost more explicit than if he just say, you know, went to bed with George. Is you know saying that all he thought about all morning was George, and he longed to kiss George one one more time. So you know, if the Nazis had 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 more sense and realized that this is explosive, because they did have, you know, he asked his son in Munich to send to, he said, go to the safe in my office, open the safe, take out these diaries or these these journals, don't look at them, don't open them, and send them by mail to Switzerland, send them by post. And um, the uh, the chauffeur they had was an actual closeted Nazi. And he let the Nazis know there's something funny Thomas Mann's son is sending to him in Switzerland. And they were they were delayed and somebody saw them, but they didn't know what they were. I'm talking to Callum Toybin about The Magician, his fictionalised novel about Thomas Mann, whose family, Colin, was afflicted by suicide terribly, was it not? Yes, um, his first sister um, with a bad romance, his second sister with years of inflation, which did cause, I mean, people to commit suicide in Germany in the 1920s. She was also addicted to morphine. And then um, of his six children, two committed suicide. Um, But I think the most heartbreaking was the first. I mean, he was dead by the time his son Michael committed suicide. But the, the, the suicide of his son Klaus you know, he had got his he'd managed to get his six children out of Europe with visas into America in the late 30s, early, early 1940s, which is a very difficult thing to do. He got his brother out. He got his sister in law. out, So he got them all safely to America. And Klaus, um, you know, actually had an American uniform on for, for 43, 44, 45. So he was an American soldier, an American citizen. But after the war. The problem after the war for people who'd been in exile was that Germany didn't particularly want them back. It wasn't as though Germans Germans said, look, we're, we, we feel shame. You're the ones who were brave. Come back and become minister for culture or, you know, come back. We need you. That wasn't how people felt. People, um, ordinary people in Germany felt um, afflicted. In other words, that they were hungry in after the war, that they had nowhere to live, that they felt betrayed. And they certainly weren't going to say, oh, and we want Klaus Mann, who's been, who's been holidaying in California for the duration of the war, to come among us and be praised. So he had no role in Germany after the war, and he had no role anywhere else. And no one was interested now in anti-fascism. It was all over. 
the Cold War was beginning. And so he had nowhere to go. And so he was he was taking morphine. He was taking various other drugs, but he, he really wasn't writing much. And he really, he I suppose he'd run out of road and he killed himself um, about 1949 in um, Cannes in the south of France. Mm. The, um, you wrote a fascinating book called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know about the fathers of Wilde and Yeats and Joyce. And the relationship between, I mean, parents and children, mothers and sons you've written about as well, but fathers... Thomas Mann, the father, the father of Wilde and Yeats and Joyce. What is this just another way of addressing characters that you're already fascinated by? Or is there a, a genuine belief on your part that the fathers may well be maybe more interesting but less prominent? Um I suppose in the case of man, you see, you see, every case is different. I suppose that's what that's what interests me, that you can go into a lot of generalizations about fatherhood and fathers and then find, no, no, every time you look at it, it's slightly different or very different to another one. So I think the death of Thomas, Thomas Mann's father was a senator. He was a, he was a serious businessman in Lübeck which was, in, you know, within the Hanseatic area near Hamburg. And he was the most respectable fellow. He just did one strange thing. He married a woman who was exotic. In other words, that she was partly brought. She was partly brought up in Brazil. There was great trade between Lübeck in the north of Germany and Brazil, because Lübeck is the center of marzipan making in in Germany, and they needed all the sugar they could get. And so, um, Thomas Mann's mother, um, her own mother, was Brazilian, meaning she was of mixed race. Now, this was a very unusual thing in a place that was made up of white Protestants. And um, Thomas Mann's father was a central figure in the commercial life of Lübeck. And he brought up his children in a very strict way. His father had, had run the business, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. This was a serious tradition. These were serious people. And he died when Thomas Mann was 13 or 14, and um, his whole world fell, fell apart. But it, it, was, it was as though he never in his life stopped wanting to impress this ghostly father to show that he he was a very good businessman, Thomas Mann, and he was very respectable in the sense that he he lived in the domestic sphere. He didn't go out. He wasn't bohemian. He didn't go out to cafes in the evening or bars or anything like that. And uh, he became, of course, the most famous German of the age with Einstein. And uh, it was always as though there was something about the father in the background am I okay now, Father, even though I didn't become a businessman? Look what I did become. And of course, the problem was the father wasn't there to receive this news. So I, I think the ghostly father in this story is is important, but also Thomas Mann himself as a father managed to be a dominating figure in the household. The Golo, his third son, not Golo, his third child, has a memoir saying how cranky Thomas Mann became in the First World War. And any of us who've lived with cranky parents, it's very difficult. You can deal with all sorts of things, but a cranky parent coming into the table, just cranky all the time, bullying and bossing and giving out, you know, that's what he became for the, for, for, for some of his, um, of the childhood of some of his children. Of course, he became a much more gentle figure later on in exile and gentle figure at the beginning. But for those years, cranky and always, of course, that terrible business that I don't know if you or anyone has ever lived through. Your father is busy writing. You must be quiet. You know, your father, your father needs silence. There can be no stop playing. Just, you know, and there was a lot of that. When your biography is written, <laughs> <laughs> will you be 
haunted by your father. Your father was stricken with a brain aneurysm when you were eight and he died four years later. And he's obviously a presence in your life. Yesterday, um, someone sent me a scan of of a reference that my father wrote for a student in 1956 when I was one years old. And what was really odd was the handwriting. There it was. I knew it so well, the handwriting, because, of course, he was always writing something. His handwriting grew a little bit more indecipherable as I was growing up. But nonetheless, there it was after what? After 60 years, um, there was the there after more than 60 years. There, there, there it was as, as though it was sort of fresh in my mind, looking at his handwriting. It was a very curious moment yesterday. I mean, it was really, oh, my God, look at this. They, someone had found the reference in an old box. And do you feel as if you want to say to him or do say to him, look what I've done? Are you proud? Um, you know, I wouldn't put it exactly like that. But I, I think that um, my, my father died when I was 12. That, and I was talking about that idea of Ireland changing so much. I didn't have those arguments with them that friends of mine were having with their parents over Catholicism, sexuality, nationalism. I didn't get to have those arguments because my father would have been an Irish nationalist. He would have been a fervent Catholic. And he certainly would have had a pretty, 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 pretty Neanderthal views on sexuality. And so I just didn't get to do that. And so he can be preserved in your mind as perhaps a more saintly person than you might have thought had he survived. Yeah, but I do remember him as being a very gentle, you know, very, very sweet man. And, and, you know, I I don't have any bad memories of him Mm -hmm. as difficult or, you know, unpleasant or violent or or anything like that or drunken, all the Irish cliche things. He, he, He was he was he was a very good man. If you could ask, I don't know whether you have a question for Thomas Mann that niggles you and niggles you. If it do you, if he were here now, would you have a question you wanted to ask him? No, I'd just apologise really for intruding on his privacy. <laughs> I think I'd leave it at that. What about Henry James? <laughs> oh, I don't. I would like to ask him really. What? Could he give me one more clue as to what's what, what what was really happening in his private life? He wouldn't, by the way, he wouldn't be helpful there. He no, he would um, not. He was he, he had a, he lived in dread of journalists. Henry James did. I mean, you you uh, you clearly believe, judging from the novel that you wrote about him, the master, that he was gay. Oh yeah. But if you had only his writings to go by, not his letters and not other people's accounts of him, only his writings, would you reach that conclusion? There are a few short stories, one called The Beast in the Jungle and one called The Jolly Corner, written sort of late in the day for him, that really would, our clues very carefully laid down that... um, his heterosexuality was not to be taken for granted. <laughs> That's, yeah. But maybe, like man, he did not allow himself to consummate it. Yeah, he lived in a funny bubble where some people knew all about him and then most people knew nothing about him. And um, so, it, it, look, it, with Edwardians especially, um, there, there were so many servants 
you know, hotel rooms um, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. There were so many people at your service in Edwardian England, Edwardian America. Um, even Henry James was living in France and Italy. You can just think of all those years and how much temptation and how much availability. And it's just not impossible. It's not, it's, it's not impossible to imagine that on one of those nights, sometime in the 1870s, Henry James just slipped down a side street. You are writing what you swore you'd never do, which is, and it's not a sequel, you say. What do you call it? A book, <laughs> 25 years after Brooklyn, that picks up on the lives of the characters? You can call it whatever you want, but it's a sequel. And I promised I wouldn't write it, and here I am. And I've written five sections out of seven, so I'm nearly finished. And, uh, yeah, it's the same characters as 25 years later. And did they just stay in your mind and you decided you wanted to see what happened to them? <laughs> no. I, I always had one image on, in my mind that um, Ailish marries Tony, the Italian, so, she's, so she probably has children. And I had an image always of two beautiful, beautiful children, age, say, 17, 18, a boy and a girl, who don't look Irish, meaning that they look Italian. And they're on the beach in Wexford and somebody's walking along the beach and they're walking along with their mother or their grandmother or somebody. And someone just stops from the town and says, who are these? Who are these two? Meaning how? how? And so they're Ailish's children. They're back from America. That's all I had in my head. And... um so um, then one day I was walking along the street. It was like it all started with my balls. You know, so walking along the street can be very useful. And um, I got an image. I got a way of beginning the book. And the minute I had that, I was away. And all my promises were nothing. And all my reservations were zero. You know, I can't work out where you find the time to do all this. I mean, it's not like you're in a room for 12 hours a day toiling over the typewriter, whatever you do. You're gregarious. You're out there. You love mixing and mingling, but you're so productive. Are you incredibly efficient? <laughs> One thing is, you know, I haven't had an alcoholic drink since the cancer. And that's not on doctor's orders or anything. I just felt that chemo, chemo is liquid. It, it changes your mood. It sort of poisons you. And it's just, I don't want any more liquids like that going into me. Thank you. So I haven't had an alcoholic drink that really saves you not sitting around bars laughing at your own jokes. It <laughs> saves you a lot. Saves you a lot of time. And uh, but you've always but, been productive, right? Long. Yeah, I'm, you I'm would... pretty good. I'm pretty good at retreating, and I'm also pretty good at just going out and and yeah. I mean, yesterday was Thanksgiving in America, so I, I had a pretty nice time in the afternoon eating a big turkey. And then I came back, and when I came back, I did some work. I came back at about, you know, eight in the evening, and I, I probably worked until ten. Whereas if you'd been drinking, that probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, no, I'd be, you would have written rubbish, you know, because not, not, that I, not that I'm saying I didn't write rubbish anyway, but, <laughs> yeah, if you were drinking, you'd really want another drink. You um, also have a new book of poetry out, or a book of poetry out. I mean, I don't. You haven't concentrated on poetry much. I think a priest spotted your talent when you were at boarding school at St Peter's, but now you've taken to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was um, a failed poet, which is very common in Ireland. 
And uh, we, we're a very quiet, careful group. We feel shame that we never really made it as poets. But there's an, another group in Ireland worse than failed poets. And they're bad poets because there are so many good poets in Ireland that you really would want to be careful publishing anything that you didn't think was OK. So I, I, I had 30 years where I wrote no poems between the ages of 20 and 50. And uh, and then it started up again, these little poems. And then when the pandemic, oh, just after the cancer, two or three poems, and I published one or two of those. And someone said to me, who worked for Carkin at John McAuliffe, who's a poet, do you have any more poems? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have, but I don't like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to show them to you. And he said, well, we'd like to see them. And that's the first time anyone had ever encouraged me in my life after that priest when I was about, you know, 15. And um, so I began in the pandemic and really as soon as the pandemic began, I began in those long, empty days. I was here in California and um, the beautiful sky outside and um, you had the whole day. You woke in the morning thinking, I had the whole day and around six every evening. I'd go back to yesterday's poem or I'd start a new one. All sorts of ideas came to me, things out of the blue. So I got all these poems and um, that was a bit of a surprise. And uh, so I published them. But um, I am um, when I'm in New York, I live near the poet Paul Muldoon. And I was really careful. I didn't want like I'm, I, well, I'm not the sort of poet who would go up to a better poet and hand him my book and say, this is my book breathlessly, you know. So I sort of avoided Paul for a while because I didn't want him to. You know, I didn't want to discuss my poems with him because, you know, he's such a great poet. And now you've written a libretto. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been really going to see opera really for, I mean, really for 50 years. And I'm really interested in how an opera is constructed. In other words, you know, aria, trio, quartet, duet, back to, you know, how all that works and how you construct your emotion around it. And so I took um, aspects of the novel, The Master, Henry James. And, I, you know, you can't just do it in a linear way. So I have a, a friend of his, Constance Fenimore Wilson, in the novel, who dies, coming back to him on New Year's Eve from the dead as a ghost and being able to lead him through his past life. She's in the room all the time as a ghost. So it gave me the chance to write um, for a mezzo. So she's a mezzo. And he's a tenor, although he, he may become a baritone soon in, in, in the next production. But she's a mezzo. And I just I love the mezzo voice. And therefore, she's really on the stage all the time. And we were very lucky in Wexford to get a great mezzo when it was in, in, in its first sort of professional production. So we'll see what happens. It's with an, uh, an Italian composer called Alberto Caruso, which you, you really couldn't resist. Someone you called Caruso no. um, who wanted to write an <laughs> opera. Oh, so he came to you and said, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. He he came to me out of the blue and said, um, you know, your novel, I'd, why do we do, why do we make it into an opera? And did you think this is a crazy idea or did you say, yeah? Oh, no, okay. I, no, no, honestly, I didn't, I didn't think at all. I just said, yeah, I'd really like to do that. The, uh, the idea of secrets is running through all your books, not only your own upbringing in Catholic Ireland, but also, you know, when we talk about uh, Henry James and Thomas Mann and Oscar Wilde, not so much. No secret. The love that would not shut up in many ways for Oscar Wilde. Um, but do you think that these writers would have been writers without having to hide that part of their lives? 
Oh, I suppose that's the big question, isn't it? That, that and the, sadly, the we energy. only have 40 seconds to answer it. Yeah, that the energy um, in secrecy is probably a grinding sort of energy that, that's, that both nourishes and poisons. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like the pearl and the oyster in many ways. It's very nice to yeah. talk to you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Callum Troy Bean, whose latest book, his latest novel is The Magician about Thomas Mann. He also has a book of essays called A Guest at the Feast.